Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. I'm Mark Pugh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine, and it's it's great to be with you guys this morning and uh, to get to worship with you, to get to celebrate God's Word we're, uh, we're continuing in a sermon series in 1 Samuel. If you guys want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, it's great. Open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> I think um, you're going to find, like I did, that this is a really, really interesting story. And, uh, you know, as, as I think about this passage, I believe it demonstrates, like so many other stories in the Bible, that God delivers consequences for his glory. So let's, let's read our passage today. Now, bear with me. This is a lot of words, 12 verses or so. So stay focused if you can. First um, Samuel 5, 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon Was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and inflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of God, of the God of, of Israel, be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought, brought around, us, around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Isn't that kind of an amazing story? I mean, it's pretty crazy, but let's, um, let's look at some context. Um, 
So we've talked about this before, but at the end of Judges, Judges 21-25, we see the people of the day, they were corrupt. Matter of fact, the quote is, they did what was right in their own eyes. This seems pretty familiar to me when we think about what's going on around us. And this last week, Andrew, he did a fantastic job unpacking the events of chapter 4. And this is where the Israelites, they lost a battle of the Philistines. And that doesn't happen a whole lot. So they're like, hey, we got to do something about this. Great idea. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant and go to battle with the Ark because we'll win with the Ark. So they go and do the battle and then they lose because they were putting their trust in the Ark of the Covenant and not on God. So God delivers some consequences to them. They're no longer able to discern God's will. They become spiritually dry. They, they lost the battle. 30,000 men lost their lives. They lost possession of the ark. This is like their lucky charm, the ark of the covenant of God. They lost it to the hands of the Philistines. Their chief priest, Eli, and his two sons died. It was not a great day to be an Israelite. And so that brings us to our passage today, to where we are now. And, and we, if we look at verse 1 today, <clears throat> we can see the Philistines they're claiming their prize from the battle, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. And they're bringing it back to one of their five main cities, Ashdod. It's about a 20-mile journey from the fight that they just, the Israelites just lost. And so today, as we're talking, we're talking about the fact that God delivers consequences for his glory. Well, if that's the case, let's look at what were some consequences that happened in our story today to the Philistines. So in chapter 5, we see that the Philistines, they were putting their trust in a false god called Dagon. And they're going to suffer for it. So Dagon, he's, he's mentioned over 10 times in our passage. And this word Dagon, it, it looks like in Hebrew, it might be a combination of fish plus grain. You know, the Philistines, they were a seafaring community and there's some imagery of Dagon that was like a, a half-man, half-fish kind of body. Um, honestly, in some research, it's not super clear what he was the deity of, but we know he was the main deity of the Philistines. And a little interesting side note, uh, a little earlier, there's a temple of Dagon in Gaza, which is a little south of Ashdod, and one of the judges from Israelite, from the Israelites, Samson, had destroyed it. So as we think about this, let's look at how the Philistines suffer in our passage. So going back through our passage a little bit, verses 1 to 3, we see that the Philistines, they put the Ark of the Covenant of God right beside Dagon. And overnight, without any help from anybody, without any Israelites helping out, God pushes over Dagon, and he's on the floor face down before the ark. That's verses 1 to 3. Then we go to verses 4 to 5, and they're like, huh, well, that's unusual. Let's put him back up in his place. The Philistines do. They put him back up overnight with no help from anybody. God pushes him over again. And this time, he busts his head and his, head and his hands away from the base. So he's got no hands, and he's got no head, and when the Philistine priests come in the next morning, they're going to realize, oh, yesterday wasn't a random act. This is really clear. Our God, Dagon, has no power. He's got no hands. And that was a, a regular 
uh, idea where you had to have your hands to have power and that representative power, and he had no wisdom or knowledge. He was foolish because he had no head. And he'd done it twice. God had pushed Dagon over twice and really saying, look, I am the only true God. So the Philistines, they're wound up over their God getting destroyed. That's what they feel like is happening. But what's really happening is God is revealing himself to them. So that's verses 4 to 5. Well, then it gets even more interesting, verse 6 and 8. 6 through 8, <clears throat> we see God, he afflicts the Philistines in Ashdod with some tumors. And they're so afraid that they got to get rid of this ark. And so they think, great idea, let's give it to our buddies over in Gath. And so now this Hebrew word for tumors, it's called emeroids. And it can be translated as hemorrhoids. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't hear about hemorrhoids very often. And so I'm thinking they're probably not real fun to get and they're probably not fun to talk about. They probably weren't very fun 3,000 years ago either. So there is a little bit of debate over what this word is, this word tumor. Um, it seems like it's a thickening of the skin. It seems like most everybody thinks it is hemorrhoids. There were some people who said, hey, maybe this came from the bubonic plague. I'm not 100% sure. I think it's probably hemorrhoids. But what I do know is it got the Philistines' attention. And they were suffering from it. So much so that they're like, hey, we got to move this ark to another city in our own area. And so you might be thinking like I did. It's like, um, does that seem like a really good idea? Let's just move it right down the road. Seems like that wasn't very smart nor very nice. Um, but it's easy for us to make fun of them for this, for not taking care of the problem. But unfortunately, I think it's, it's kind of our human nature that we tend to put off dealing with problems, especially if it's a problem that's not right in front of us. We'll gladly take the monkey off our back and give it to somebody else so that that problem is gone away from us. You know, I've, I've managed some people in my career when I was in the business world, and I'd realize, oh, I got a new person, and they have a work performance problem. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, how did we get here? Why didn't the last manager deal with this and deal with this work performance problem? And it's not abnormal that we kind of kick that problem down the road. And so for the Philistines in Ashdod, they knew they didn't want to have these hemorrhoids and they were willing to do anything, including get rid of it to the next city so they don't have to deal with it. This is, again, a little bit like my house where something goes missing. It's mine. And I'm like, hey, Rhonda, what'd you do with my glasses? You've moved them. And I'm kind of blaming her, and sure enough, she always finds everything and takes on my problem. The kids call her the finder of lost things. So Ashdod, like us, they kick the problem down the road. And then we see in verse 9 and 10 that Gath does the exact same thing to Ekron. And then in verses 11 here, Ekron, they're, they're almost aware of it. It's like, hey, as soon as it comes, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And they see a lot of people die and others get tumors before they realize, hey, let's get everybody together. Let's decide we want this thing to go back to Israel, which is chapter 6. We'll see next week. 
<clears throat> so we can clearly see the consequences, right, that God has given to the Philistines. And they, they certainly seem like a punishment, like a, a discipline to change their behavior. And, and these kind of hard consequences or, or curses, they, they can feel like a punishment to us. But we need to remember what God is always, what God is always for. God is always for bringing glory to himself. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, no, no, that kind of seems weird. Like God seems a little self-centered to me. That's, that's an unusual thing. He's just all about glory for himself. And, <clears throat> but the reality is that God bringing glory to himself is the very most loving thing he could do for his people, for his creation. His glory ultimately brings true love to us. It brings peace to us. It brings purpose to his family, to, these, to the people that worship him. This is so good when we, when we sense his glory. His glory ultimately brings more worshipers into his family, which has eternal consequences. Seeing God's glory brings faith to his people. So if we, we realize that, let's look at this situation, how this situation and God's consequences bring him glory. <clears throat> and so in verse 12, and really you can see it throughout the whole passage, the Philistines are scared to death. They know God's power, and they are scared. We see in verse 12, they're crying out to heaven. They're not really crying out to heaven to say, hey, God, you're great. They're just crying out to heaven because they want God's power away from them. But they're acknowledging God's power, and that brings God glory. And then next week, we're going to see that the ark, again, it goes back to Israel on its own. And it brings God glory the way that happens. And then even later, we see in chapter 7 that because of all this, the Israelites, they repent, they destroy their idols, and they seek God. See, because in this story, God does what his people could not do. He brings glory to himself on his own. See, God allowed his people to suffer. In chapter 4, he allowed the Philistines to conquer the Israelites. And, <clears throat> and that happened while the Israelites were trusting in the ark. And he teaches them, as, as Andrew told us last week, hey, you don't play games with God. This happened while a huge army was protecting the ark and was in battle. But then in our story, we see God single-handedly, he destroys the Philistines. He, he makes them realize, I am the true God. I am the only God. And then he returns to his people. So single-handedly, takes care of the situation, and he comes back to his people via the ark. What an amazing story. What an amazing God. You know, by returning to his people, this passage teaches us that he is compassionate. He's trustworthy. And if he, if he needs to, he'll execute his plan on his own because he loves us that much. He delivers on his promise to us that he would be our God and we would be his people. And honestly, he's not only compassionate to the Israelites. We see long time later that he's compassionate to the Philistines. We see uh, in Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 7, that God brings some of the Philistines 
into his remnant family, even though they were not worshiping him at that time. Zechariah 9, 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It, the Philistines, too, shall be a remnant for our God. The Philistines shall be like a clan in Judah. In the future, the Philistines would cease eating unclean food and they would worship the true God. We, we see this not only in Zechariah, that the, the Jew, Jewish uh, historian Josephus he also mentions that some Philistines are converted. So here's what's really, really interesting, interesting about this story. What I, what I think is so interesting about this is it's, it represents the whole story of the Bible. It's the meta-narrative of the Bible. It's the overarching story of the Bible. It, it shows God's ultimate plan is to bring himself glory and to bring more worshipers to himself. You know, when we read these stories, we tend to get fixated on the details of the story and the lesson provided within it, and we can lose sight that these stories actually point to the bigger story. You know, when we talk about uh, David and Goliath, and everybody knows that story, and there's all sorts of, he had a lot of faith, and he's courageous, and he beats this giant. But the real purpose of that is found in 1 Samuel 17. We see that at the end of that story. It says, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's the point of that story. And Jonah and the well, all sorts of teaching around Jonah and the well. But in chapter 4 of Jonah, at the very end, he says, and should I, talking to Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? God is worried about more worshipers in his family. It's not about the well. And then Daniel 6, same thing. Daniel in the lion's den, great story. But what's it really about? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, not a believer. He has a change of heart. You see him write a decree. And it says, may you prosper greatly. This guy's one of the most powerful people in the world at that time. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. And then finally, we see God's glory in Jesus. Jesus committed to doing what, the Lord, what God the Father said all the time. He was all about God's glory. We see that in John 14, 31. See, Jesus' life, it wasn't just about his death on the cross and him saving you and I. His life was more than that. Yes, his, his death on the cross, it allows us to have forgiveness. It gives us a, a way to heaven and, and eternal life with him to be a part of his family, that he takes away our sin that we all have. And he gives us his right standing with God. Yes, it is about that, but it is more than that. His life is about bringing more worshipers to God, to bringing God glory. So if this is true, if it's true that God delivers consequences to bring himself glory, what are we to do then? Our whole passage today um, points us to Romans 1. You know, I think it's so easy that we get lost in today's worldly events and what's going on in our lives, and it's hard to put our trust just in Christ. But that's what we're to do. 
were to put our trust in Christ and only Christ. And unfortunately, it's really hard to do that all the time. And in Romans 1, we see Paul here, he makes it clear that worshiping idols or worshiping the creature versus the creator is useless. And this is our struggle. Romans 1, 21 to 25, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, I think most of us struggle with this. <clears throat> I, I know I, I get excited about my money. I, I want people to like me and so sometimes I say yes to things that I ought to say no. I work really hard at times so I can be in control rather than letting go and letting God that I would rely on him instead of myself. I so often worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And when I, when I step back from that, I take a moment to pause, like capture my thoughts like 2 Corinthians 10.5 says for us to do. I realize how Silly that is, to worship the creature. How silly it is to make Jesus be one more thing. One more thing that we put our trust in. One more thing that we listen to. He's one more thing that, that might help us solve a problem. <clears throat> you know, we're just like the Israelites and the Philistines. We put our trust in other things that make us feel safe and make us feel happy. The Israelites, they trusted the ark. The Philistines trusted Dagon, and we tend to trust things that we think are really powerful, but they're really not that powerful, and they're not really that good. We worship our kids. We worship our work. You know, we get too excited or too fulfilled from those things. Like, we're so energized or excited, it's so important that we close that sales deal. It's not bad, but we tend to worship. Or, or we get so worried or excited about our kids' good or bad behavior. We put our trust in our youth and our beauty, and then when it fails, we struggle. We put our trust in a, a politician of our political party. And when these things fail, we move to whatever's next. We're all looking for something. We put our trust in other things. They're earthly things. And these things come with consequences because God loves us with a steadfast love. And that's that word has said in Hebrew, and it's a, it's a powerful word. You know, for me, I, I love Jesus plus that next achievement. I, I really find it hard to be just satisfied with Christ alone. I'm most happy when I know I'm doing a good job. You know, one day this week, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was struggling a little bit, and uh, I was frustrated and a little bit annoyed, and so I didn't have a great day. 
And uh, I hadn't worshiped very well that week the, leading up to that. And the next morning, I, I get a little quiet time, and I'm reflecting on why, why, did, why was I having such a bad day? And I realized it's because I put my trust in me, and I had something going on that I really wasn't sure how to handle it. So I was just annoyed. I was just frustrated with it. So instead of having a great day, a day I could have flourished, there was really no reason for me not to flourish that day, I didn't because I put my trust in me instead of putting my trust in God, putting my work onto the Lord, doing the best I can and letting him be in charge of the results. But that stress in my worship, those consequences brought me back to God. It brought me back to Jesus. And just like the the Israelites and the Philistines, we tend to not repent until it hurts. Until we experience some sort of pain, we tend to kind of keep going about what we were doing, but God. But God's has said, his steadfast love, it is very real. And he's good in how he cares for us. And it's a beautiful moment when we really, when we really, really believe that. Proverbs 3, 5 is a, it's a great verse I enjoy um, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. See, when we suffer, do we go to God and put all, all our trust in him? We have the medical procedure, is it putting our trust with God plus the medical team? When we look for our identity, is it Jesus that gives us our label or do we look for our identity with Jesus plus our work or Jesus plus our Kids, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our grades, whatever the thing is, there's something beyond Jesus that we're putting our trust in. Do we trust in the fact that this is God's ultimate plan to bring more worshipers to his kingdom and that we get to be a part of that, that we get to taste and see how good God's kingdom is to now, today, and express that to others, that there's a beautiful part that we're included in and and maybe we suffer a little bit. Are we okay with that? When we put our trust in anything besides Christ and his saving work on the cross, we begin to trust the creature rather than the creator. And these passages in 1 Samuel, they teach us that there will be consequences from that. If we want to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit, we've got to learn this. We've got to learn to totally surrender our lives to Christ and the Holy Spirit. I think this has a a very real impact, a very practical impact to our daily worship, especially if you're in a season of being dry. When, When Jesus is in the middle of our lives, instead of being just one more thing, he transforms us so that we solve all of our problems with his kingdom in mind. And this radically impacts our thinking. It radically impacts the way we view work, the way we view our resources, our stuff. And it gives us a different purpose for our lives. So this morning when we come together like we do so often and we, we move towards this time of communion, let's remember that, that God knew we were going to be here. He knew we would be a family together today, that he was going to honor that promise that he's our God and that we would be his people. And we see that. He displays this on his own in this passage, that he returns to his people. 
And so today, as, as we come together and we think about um, taking this meal together, let us remember that we're one big broken family, that we're all here together to, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to do God's word together, that we would grow together as a family, and that there's no one better than someone else in this. We're all dependent upon Christ. So this morning, before we take this meal, I, I, I'm asking us, and, and we need to participate in just settling our heart down and being still for a moment and, and worshiping the Lord. And so we've got a couple of questions I'd ask you to meditate on and to pray. And if you've got unrepentant sin, to repent. And then after a minute or two, I'll pray and close this out and we'll enjoy this meal together. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at thevinecc. Have a great week.